There's an ancient, very simple prayer of the church that uh, Catholics are keen on, and I'm guessing is probably pray, prayed quite a lot in the Orthodox Church as well, uh, referred to as the Glory Be. And until a few uh, years ago, it was just something I'd seen on TV that Catholic priests said to people after they'd been to confession, say, eight Glory Bees or something like that. I wasn't very familiar with it, but it's something I've become more familiar with. And the Glory Be goes like this, Glory Be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, or something to that effect, will be forever. Amen. So that's the glory be. And it's a really, really special prayer because um, it readjusts our vision of the world around us. I find it personally particularly helpful because uh, of the time period it points us to. Uh, And it's it's like putting on a pair of glasses, which some of you will know what it's like and some of you won't. but (laughs) Um, But for me, it's like focusing vision. I think it's this wonderful statement. When you say glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, the thing that comes to mind in my mind is those opening verses in Genesis. as Everything was dark, was void, was formless, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And at that moment, glory was being given to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, I, I love that. Because there's nothing there. And yet God is being glorified. Well, how about that? That's good. I like that. that I'm going to appeal to some of my, in my imagination. Is now. Two simple words, and yet incredibly profound. From the simplicity of everything was dark and formless, you know, and so on, to the complexity of the universe, and especially the world that we live in, especially human society, all the stuff that's going on around us right now, in your personal life, and in the world around us, and in politics, and whatever, whatever. Glory be to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is being glorified. Everything is under his control, under his sovereignty. It's it's all to his praise. And that is profoundly vision-adjusting sentiment, isn't it? And will be. As much as things have changed since the beginning until now, things will change (laughs) from now until forever. And there's this amazing, glorious future, isn't there? When we're in this middle bit where things appear stretched or somehow in tension between good and evil and that sort of thing, even though God is being glorified, there is this ending where God will be perfectly glorified. There will be no more questions, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. And God will be glorified forever and ever. I just think that's amazing, don't you? So, there's a link between that sentiment and this passage. Um, that often we need to reset the way that we see the world around us. We need to get in line with God's vision, not ours. As much as I need to say to myself, either the glory be or just have a, uh, a sentiment to that effect and say, actually, you know, things are as you want them to be, God. We, I need that all the time. We all need that all the time. And actually, God is doing that in this passage. He's reminding us that we do need a kind of resetting, a, a moment of putting on our glasses and, and seeing that actually everything is as God intends it to be. When it comes to two particular things, God's plans and God's people. God's plans and God's people. In the passage, John the Baptist is, I think, quite obviously finding it hard to see that Jesus is the one who's ex- who he expected to come. 
He's preached this amazing, fiery, passionate, world-changing message. Thousands upon thousands of people have come out to see him and been baptised and you know, have recommitted their lives to God and to a life of repentance and a renewed righteousness. And he's preached this amazing message. And Jesus has come and it's not what he expected. Now, we can read a lot into that, but I just think, just barely on personalities, we talked last week about John is a kind of far out there character, isn't he? He was a bit of a fire and brimstone preacher, maybe. I think that's okay. I don't think we're stretching it too much. He was this prophetic guy, and there's Jesus. There are all these tensions between what John was saying and what Jesus seemed to be saying. So John's disciples fasted as much or if not more than anybody else, and Jesus was feasting. And not with nice people, but with not very nice people. You know, John's disciples were fastidious about the various rules, and Jesus' disciples didn't seem to be. Jesus was undermining all these expectations. He preached this this day, this terrible day of the Lord. The Messiah was going to come with his threshing fork. His no, his winnowing fork. What is the other thing? I said this last week as well, anyway. (laughs) He's coming to clear out the, the mess and burn up the chaff. He's just not what he expected. So he sends messengers from prison to Jesus. Are you the one? And Jesus' reply, in summary, is, yep, you bet. (laughs) That's it, isn't it? He acknowledges the difficulty. He says, you know, blessed is the one who uh, doesn't stumble. uh, Verse 6, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. He acknowledges that it is a challenge. To look at the life of Jesus from the position where John's standing and go, yep, blessed is the man. But he says, yeah, I am the one. The evidence stacks up. Then in the second half of the passage, there's this really interesting thing happens. And I think this is why they're linked together in Matthew's gospel. Jesus then begins to address the same issue of misunderstanding, but this time about the people's misunderstanding of John. He's speaking about the difficulty of seeing. Is John... The Elijah who was to come prophesied in Micah there's going to be, uh, Elijah is going to return and he's going to uh, preface the, uh, the Messiah. He's going to usher in the Messianic uh, kingdom. He's, he's the one who's going to announce it. John kind of fits the bill, but he was, like we talked about last week, he was kind of wacky. And was he the one who was to come? He undermined people's expectations. He wasn't what they were thinking. You know, there were lots of things about his character that, that didn't match. And Jesus' answer is the same as about himself. It's yes. Yes, he is. He is the one. Okay. So what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us in this passage? How is he speaking to us? We can struggle to accept God's plans. Can't we? We can struggle with the saying, glory be to the Father now and and to the Son and Holy Spirit now and you know, in the, all the stuff that's happening around us, we struggle to accept what's happening to us or in the lives of people we love or in the world around us, <laughs> the results of an election maybe for some of you, or in the church or in the world in general. We struggle to accept those things and to see, is God really in charge? Is God really at work in amongst all that's happening around us? John the Baptist struggled. He had every advantage. He had every right to expect that he would have recognized the Messiah. 
you know, he was a devout Jewish man, righteous, you know, really upright from an amazing family. He was, he was the Elijah who was to come. If anyone was going to recognize Jesus, it was, uh, it was the Messiah, it was going to be him. And yet he struggled. We are going to struggle to recognize what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of people around us. But God is at work. God is at work. That's what he'd say to us this morning. You need to hear that? I need to hear it. So the passage gives us some reasons why we struggle. Some of these I'm just guessing at because they're just kind of human nature and some of them are kind of explicit in the passage. It's helpful for us just to think about these things for a minute. Sometimes we struggle to recognize what God is doing in our lives or the world around us because of our personality, don't we? There was a, I said it already. There's a personality clash between John and Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. John is, I don't know how to compare it. He's the firebrand, isn't he? He's, he's the one who goes before. He's the, you know, on the, on the pulpit. He's the one shouting. He's the one who, you know, calls people a brood of vipers. Refer to last week's sermon if you want to re- reflect on that. You know, he's the one who uh, uses this incredibly, uh, you know, th- there's not a lot of nuance. And Jesus is nuanced in ways that constantly undermine what he, Jesus is the one with the winnowing fork. He is the one who brings the, the, the great and terrible day of the Lord. He is the one who brings judgment. And yet he's doing all these things that, that John just hadn't anticipated. But why? Just, I think, quite honestly, I and mean, this isn't from the passage, but this is just based on human nature. I think just because he's just wired differently to who Jesus is. His personality is to expect just something more like him. Do you think that's true? There's a certain element of personality in this. Okay, we struggle to see what God is doing because God often does things in a different way to the way we would do them, doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does, if you're struggling to answer that question. <laughs> we struggle to recognize what God is doing because quite just in terms of psychology, we are very, very comfortable with vague kind of like one day something will happen. And then when it actually happens and it unfolds before you in your life with people you actually know, uh, in situations you know you, that are around you, the, the reality looks different to what you're expecting. It's just human nature, isn't it? We just you know we take things for granted, and then history unfolds around us, and we, we find it hard to spot. Very very simple. You know this. Uh, it's easy to say he comes with his winnowing fork. It's easy to say there's this great and terrible day of the Lord. But in history, what did that look like? It looked like a man from Galilee, you know who. With you know actual you know, an actual backstory, uh, a family that he came from, a place that he came from, a, uh, an accent. It looked like the cross. It looked like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You know these are actual historical realities. None of those things were clear before Jesus came. So it's just it's it's just we struggle with the tension between the abstract. The Bible says, as a Christian, life's going to be difficult sometimes. <laughs> things are going to happen that you don't understand. We're comfortable with the abstract, and when the reality hits, it's just tough to process, isn't it? I I think so. We struggle with what God is doing in our lives and the world around us because of our human perspective. We just, we're limited. We can only see what we can see. God's mind is bigger than ours. Infinitely so. Thank goodness for that. 
We can't guess at what God is doing. That's an important point, isn't it? If you're struggling, you know, what's the thing you're thinking of? What are you puzzled about? God is wiser and cleverer than you. That's not to make you feel small, but that's to make you excited. He is doing something more beautiful, better, more wonderful than you can imagine in your life and in the world around you. That's why it's not how you expect it to be. You know, this mystery of the incarnation, God become man, that John was witnessing in the person of Jesus, was a mystery hidden before all ages. Even the angels couldn't guess at it. Revealed now. You know, how was he, how was he to even begin to comprehend? I mean, it took the, the disciples didn't get it, did they? It took the church hundreds of years to even begin to be, explain it, you know, accurately. Amazing. We struggle with, for all these human reasons, and we struggle also because of our own weakness. We struggle because of our own weakness. Jesus talks about kind of um, fickleness. There is something a little naive about John. I think that's not too presumptuous. There is something a little bit, um, I think almost, well, it, it sounds quite humorous to me. It's, it's, it's not a put down because the Lord wouldn't do that. But Jesus' reply to John is very abrupt, isn't it? Well, let's see now. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. What do you think? <laughs> you know? He's sort of reading into it, but it's kind of like, I appreciate you had your expectations, but this is what was foretold in Scripture. These things are happening. Yes, I am the Messiah. And then Jesus repeats that kind of thing to the people who came out to see John. He, he says to them rhetorically, you guys went out in your droves to see John in the wilderness. No one made you go. <laughs> you went out to see him. Why did you go? To see a reed shaking in the wind? It's like a, you know, someone making a noise. No. Did you go to see someone in fine clothes or in a king's house? No. You went to see a prophet. And when he behaves like a prophet, you say, oh, is he really a prophet? <laughs> There's something fickle in you. There's something weak in you. He says elsewhere in his gospel, you know, we play one tune and we say, oh, we didn't like that tune. Well, we wanted a different tune. <laughs> you know, there's something in us, isn't there? That actually God's ways, it's not just that we're small. It's not just the way we're wired. But actually, there's a weakness in us. That when God gives us what we want or God gives us something good, well, petulantly, we're like, well, that's not what I wanted. There's a lack of strength in us. Well, these are the things we struggle with. But when we take all those things into account, combine them all together, what is God inviting us to do this passage? He's inviting us to something really, really wonderful. To see that he is at work. Right now. In whatever challenging situation you're facing. You know, personally, and I know there are big, you know, personal challenges for many of you right now. There's things happening in your own life, and you know, the lives of people very, very close to you, that are hard to understand and that you would rather are not happening. If that's not an understatement. And God is saying, I am doing 
good, beautiful, powerful things in the midst of what is hard for you to understand. Maybe you're finding it hard to follow Jesus. There's some command he's given, some aspect of the Christian life that is just seems like one step too far. Just why would God ask me to do that? He is reassuring you. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to give you arbitrary religion. I'm trying to give you good things. The fruit of eternal life. You're struggling in your relationship, perhaps in your marriage. God is addressing all those things. He's saying, yes, I know it's not what you expected. Because partly your personality and partly the specifics versus the reality, you know, the the white wedding day versus the, <laughs> the Monday morning. And partly it's your limited perspective. You can't even begin to imagine the amazing blessing I've got in store for you. Partly it's, what did you expect when you said, for better or for worse, richer or poorer? That is what you went out into the desert to see. You know, that is what you signed up for, right? There's all those things. In tragedy, in illness, God is doing good things. And he wants to reset that vision for you this morning. Will you have it reset? Blessed is anyone who doesn't take offence at me, Jesus says. Blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on my behalf. You know, we have the confidence of Scripture. We also have the testimony of the church that when we face these puzzles in our life, God is doing good. I, I, was, I thank God for his guidance in my sermon prep, and I don't really want to let you in on all the ins and outs on it, but sometimes he'll drop a name into my mind of an illustration to give you, and often I won't know much about you know, what he's given me, but I just felt prompted to share this with you this morning. The name Richard Wormbrandt popped into my mind. I knew he was in Romania, I knew he'd been tortured, but I just felt the Holy Spirit prompt me to give you as an, an example to look up some quotes from him, which is quite specific, isn't it, about this particular subject. And I, so I looked it up, and up comes this, like, you know, internet quotes directory or whatever it was. I don't know what it was. And honestly, the first five things that came up were, like, this subject. It was incredible. <laughs> it was just so incredible. He was, um, just to give you a bit of background, he was a, a Romanian Christian from a Jewish background. He was in prison in 1948 for eight years. He was released and then arrested the following year, and he was tortured in prison in terrible ways. Was, this is from his biography. During his imprisonment, he was beaten and tortured. Physical torture included uh, mutilation, burning, being locked in a large frozen icebox. His body bore the scars of physical torture for the rest of his life. For example, he later recounted having the soles of his feet beaten until the flesh was torn off, then the next day being beaten again to the bone. No words could describe the pain he endured. But this is a quote that he, uh, from, from him about suffering. There was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everyone danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music to which others are deaf. They dance and do not care if they are considered mad. He says this about his time in prison. It was strictly forbidden 
to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught would receive a severe beating. So we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached, they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. The testament, this, why, why, am I getting, why is it on my heart? Or why did God prompt me to look that up? Not to say, and I'm sure there's no one here facing what Richard Fernbrandt faced. Not to say what you're going through, however big or small, is, pales into insignificance. That's not what God would say. It would say that the promises of Scripture are true. And the 2,000 years of church history, people living out what God is saying to you this morning, is true. He is faithful and true. God is faithful to his word. And it may be hard to imagine how that works, but surely hearing someone else who's gone through it say, this is how it works. Actually, we, it's not just that you can get through it. It's not just that God can encourage you in your suffering, but that you can be blessed. You can dance to a tune that no one else can hear. In the middle of your struggles, whether it be personal or global, whether it be something you're thinking about on behalf of others or something that you're viscerally, viscerally feeling in your own life, God would speak to you this morning and say, I am with you in these things. I am doing good to you. You can accept what I'm doing. You can accept what I'm doing. You know what? It's not just that God can get you through what is happening. It's actually about recognizing Christ in the midst of these things. It's actually about meeting with the Lord Jesus in the midst of your struggles. See, it would be very easy and a bit, well, you know, and, and a familiar message to you to say, God can get you through this. That's not what he's saying to us this morning. He's saying, I want to meet you in the middle of this. I want to do amazing things. I want to bring healing, raise the dead, preach the gospel. I want my light to shine forth from you. I want to bring you closer to me than you've ever experienced before. I want to reshape you and remold you. I want to transform you to, to be like Jesus. I want my love to flow out of you. I want you to encounter my, my presence in ways you never have before. I want to light up your prayer life. I, I want people to be saved through you. I want you to preach more eloquently, to live more beautifully than you ever have before in the midst of the thing that you're struggling with. This is not about getting you through. It's about encountering Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what the Bible is clear about. Not just God is strong enough to carry you, but he will lay for you a, a feast in the presence of, a, of your enemies. That's what God is doing. The blind receiver. When you think that God is doing nothing, the blind receive the sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor hear good news. This is also among the quotes from Richard Van Brandt that I discovered. God will judge us not according to how much we endure, but how much we could love. 
every situation, every puzzle that we face, every difficult circumstance that we go through is not just a case of, can you stand this? Can you get through this? It is an invitation to reply back to God with faith and love. So when you face that thing, it's not just a case of holding on. God is inviting you. Can you recognize Jesus? Can you meet him in the midst of this thing by your response of faith? That's what he's saying. You know, and there are some quite abstract things, some puzzles about the world some of you are worrying about, and there's some very personal things about the direction of your life and some very personal things about, you know, difficult situations you're going through. God is not just saying, I will get you through. He's saying, he's calling to you as his child. He's saying, come to me. What does love look like? What does Christ look like in the middle of this situation? He's also preparing us for the year to come. It's not just about what you're going through now. There is stuff coming down the line. It will not be what you are expecting. And God is saying, be ready to see in the midst of that. And it might be that it's not what you're expecting in a good way. It might be that it's not what you're expecting in a bad way or just a confusing way. But he's saying, are you ready to look for me in the midst of those things? That's what it means to be prepared to meet with Jesus. So God would encourage us. So I think God would speak to us about accepting his plans. You feel like he's been speaking to you? I think, I think God would also speak to us in a way more personally as a church about accepting God's people. This is a kind of uh, a subset of, of, of what I've been saying already so far. All the same things apply. Our limited perspective, our personality differences, all those things, our weaknesses and so on, in terms of us accepting what God is doing in the world around us or in our own lives, also apply to our attitude towards one another. That actually we find it really difficult to accept one another in Christ, just very, very naturally speaking. And, and this is the point, really. I guess it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If John, who was, according to Jesus, uh, the greatest uh, among those among those born, born women, the greatest, uh, with all his preparation, all those sorts of things, could not see the good in Christ. What are the chances that me or you are not going to be able to see the good in each other? I'd say they're quite high. Do you follow the reasoning? Have I messed up the explanation? No, we're okay. All right. <laughs> we find it difficult to see Christ in each other. Don't we? Oh, it's such a relief to admit it, though. It is really, really hard. There's some... Just, I don't know whether to begin with the challenge or the beautiful thing, really. What does God hold out for us? This is it's partly about where we're at as a church, and it's very, it's very specific to us at Turner's Hill. It's part of what I think God is doing in the church, honestly, about... Just rejigging, reframing the way you know what we think is most important, and how we understand what he's doing, and what church is for, and so on. But God wants us to encounter Him in each other. 
that actually if we, if we could see through his eyes, and I know I say this like every week or every other week, if we could see one another through his eyes, we would, we would see so much of God's beauty and glory. We would, it would be like, you know, it would be like when Adam saw Eve. Here at last is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. It would be this overwhelming, incredible encounter. Some of you mystically have experienced that encounter by the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into your hearts. And for a moment or for a, li- a week or, or something like that, you've looked around and you've seen everyone through that lens. And it's a, a blessed, blessed experience. That is true. That, that is how things really are. But because of sin in our hearts and uh, all the various things that happen to us because of our weakness and the fact that we're nowhere near heaven yet, all those things, we don't see that in each other. And yet God calls us as a church to live as if that's true. And it's really, really hard to do that. And God wants to acknowledge the difficulty. He wants to remind us of the goodness of what he calls us to. God's calling us this beautiful thing. But it's hard. I, I read this uh, testimony in the week, and this is when the Lord just first put it onto my heart. Um, it's about a, a guy, an evangelical Christian in America. Um, excuse me. He'd written to this uh, famous journalist. I won't bore you with who it is. Um, but he wanted to recount his experience of work. He basically, he works at a coffee shop. He's a student, but he worked at this coffee shop for three and a half years to earn some money. This is in the US. There were three Christians among the staff of 20. Most of the people he worked at, or worked with would say they have no faith. They sort of embrace progressive kind of woke ideology, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, they left-wing politics, no Bible knowledge. They're really into feminism and astrology and tarot and witchcraft. They cohabit with their partners. They take drugs. They go on abortion marches. They generally have a negative view of Christians. These are the people he works with. And this is the kicker. He says, and yet these people feel more like my family than most of the people in my church. Now, the guy he wrote to, he wrote this and he said, we need to spend more time with each other at church. Okay, I'll concede the point. I think, actually, in terms of time, we're probably doing okay. Probably better than most churches. That's probably not our, problem. our biggest problem, challenge as a small church. But I think the challenge that we all face is accepting one another as God accepts us. There is an irony, and some of you have expressed it to me privately, that actually some of us have a direct correlation with this experience, that some of our best friends, some of the people we feel most relaxed with, most accepted by, are not the people we go to church with. That's weird, isn't it? Why should that be? God is actually asking us that question this morning. Why should that be? And I think it's because we're caught. We're caught between two things. Because we have the morality of God, the morality of Christ, the rules of the kingdom, because we know what we're called to, the heights that God has destined us for, sometimes we lose sight of the grace that he's extended to us, the depth of his love. And so actually we are more judgmental, less accepting with one another than we would be with those who aren't Christians. And actually, the people who aren't Christians are with us. Do you think that's true? What is God saying to us? This is very personal, and I appreciate I'm not exactly expositing the passage here, but really I do think it's on the Lord's heart for us as a church. We have to be a place where we can hold in tension that mysterious thing that God has called us to be Christ-like, and yet that we accept one another, more so 
than the people who don't, you know, they don't have a clue about God or what we're called to. They don't know how special people are. They don't know that we're made in God's image to glorify God forever and reflect his glory. They haven't, they haven't got a clue, and yet they're more accepting. We have to be more accepting of one another than that. And it is, it is this, this middle way that God is calling us to as a church. And maybe this is a challenge, maybe this is a vision for, for you know, not just this week, but for the year to come or the years to come. We have to be in a place where there has to be this radical acceptance. Church should be familiar with a capital F, like a family. When a baby is born, you do not assess it. You do not like measure its limbs. Well, the doctors do that, but you, know, you, you don't. You don't measure its limbs or its fingers. You don't, look, you don't critique its structure of its iris. or You don't do those things, do you? You receive it as a gift. And as a, child, as a child grows up, you don't assess it. In fact, there's something instinctively repugnant about that, isn't it? Even in like sats and all that sort of thing, we find it kind of uh, like, why are we testing our children? We receive them. And in the church, God commands us to do the same with one another. When someone comes into a church, they're not a Christian, or they're just a Christian, or they come with some things that we don't understand, or some behaviors that we don't understand. God is saying, you have to receive one another, accept one another, as Christ has accepted you. That has to be your first movement towards your brother and sister. That first attitude. Not some arbitrary list of evangelical qualities. If, if this is a person is a true Christian, this is, these are the things they're going to have. You know what I'm talking about? Particularly not stuff that's not in Scripture, because you'll notice that you know, Jesus refers back to Scripture twice. You know, he, this is the Elijah who is to come. These are things foretold. You know. We mustn't assess one another by these arbitrary categories that are more to do with our own personalities or our own traditions that we built up. God is calling us to a radical acceptance. He's calling us to repent of being small-minded about what it looks like to be Christ-like. John thought he knew what Christ would look like, and he was wrong. No, I'll correct that. He was half right. He just saw the judgment, but he didn't see the gentleness, the grace, the love. He didn't see the incarnation coming. We are usually half right at best. God wants to continually surprise us through the personalities and the gifts and the circumstances and the unique growth paths of the brothers and sisters around us. And if we're not going to be the church of the past that's fragmented into a thousand pieces, if we're going to be a church that's truly one in Christ and truly part of the one church, we have to adopt this, this mentality. So we have to be, God is calling us to be repent of that. I, I, I can say this because he's called me to repent of it so many times. He still does. You know, I just, I, I despair at how, on a personal level, how judgmental, how narrow-minded I have been. Still am, but less so than in the past. And what, what, what it looks like to be Christ-like. I'm, I'm, I have apologized to God. I've repented with tears. Because it just it, it robs me of the beauty of his church. And some of you guys are being robbed. God is calling us to repent of that. He's also calling us, I believe, to repent of being over-familiar. So I said we need to be familiar. 
You know, and actually, the danger in a small church is not so much that we're going to be so far from each other we don't know each other's business, but actually that we're going to be so close that we think we know each other's business and we don't. You get this in families among siblings. You know, when a, it's usually an older child, apologies, so, but usually when an older child assumes they know a lot about their younger sibling, you know, telling them what to do. Oh, this is why you did that. This is why you did that. We judge motives. Sorry, Sophie, I'm really not just picking on you. But we, we all do it to each other. You know, we assume we understand people's motives. We assume we know their hearts. Because we know each other well, we assume too much. We, we poke our noses into each other's business. It's not out of love, but out of something else. You recognise what I'm talking about? There has to be, in a truly familiar situation, a kind of openness, a freedom, a letting be about our relationship with one another, a kind of a wonder, a kind of let me be surprised by you, rather than, oh, I, I, I don't like that, I want, you know, pushing away. I feel like God is speaking. I'm not sure I'm being entirely eloquent about it, but does it make sense? Yes? Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, would it help to like, maybe just give two examples? One is where someone's doing something outright sinful. Yeah. The Bible says it's wrong. And one where someone's doing something and we don't know why or whether it's not open to Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to struggle to think of examples on the spot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, good, thank you. Okay, so Nick's ask his question is, you know, are we therefore, is acceptance just a case of like never speaking to each other's lives? Of never correcting, right? And of course that's not what it is. It's, it's not that. So that's not what God is saying to us. It's not about, you know, am I my brother's keeper? You are your brother's keeper, but you're not his jailer, <laughs> you know? So we are to, if someone comes, if someone's drunk and you need to correct them, or if someone's doing something and it's against scripture, we are one another's keeper. We are to speak into that in love. And depth of relationship enables that. But we're not to judge in such a way as we imprison that person's personality, make them feel controlled or judged or, you know, that's how we walk that line in being more accepting than the world is around us. Thanks, Nick. So God is, I think, calling us into Gently, you know, I say he's calling us to repent. He's calling us to see the beauty of a church that works that way. Can it capture your imagination? Could God capture our hearts in that way? Can we commit to, you know, what can we do? I mean, you know, we're not going to pull up our socks, try hard, and it'll work magically, is it? But we can. what we can do is we can repent. Whenever we encounter that in our own hearts, we can say, Lord, this is, I'm putting on my glasses. I'm accepting that person as they are. I'm going to repent of my attitude. I'm going to say, this isn't from you. There is a better way to see that person. We miss out on Christ because we fail to recognize him in one another. When we recognize him in each other, we know him more. That's the truth. When we live in love, we live in God. When we live in love, we live in God. When people leave church relationships, they leave churches and they gather together in little homogenous groups. People like them. And it's okay. It's okay. But it's not the church that God envisioned. It's not the beautiful city with multicolored foundations and gold streets and pearl gates. 
and the light of Christ shining out of it, with every tribe and tongue and nation speaking from it, and all the treasures of the kingdoms of the earth brought into it. It's not that. You know, we're not the church, but we are a church, and God is calling us to live out that rich and complex beauty that begins with acceptance and leads to gracious maturity, where everyone, where we feel accepted like in a family. This new thing that God is doing is so wonderful that he's calling us to. And I believe it's the key to so many of our heart's desires. After our encounter with him, but particularly of the gospel going forth. You know, we will see the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raised, the poor being brought good news. We will see those things literally and figuratively as people come to be saved. For where brothers dwell in unity, God commands a blessing. The water of life, which fill up the temple of God, which is the church, will flow out and bring life to the world around us and call people to Christ's throne. That's what God is calling us to.